What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Rather than interview a guest myself, I'll be on the other side of the microphone for this one. I went on my friend Andrew Brandt's podcast last week, and we discussed why I left Wall Street to create sports business content full-time, the continued emergence of crypto within sports, Formula One's meteoric rise in the United States, and more. I had a ton of fun recording this with Andrew, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro covered by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoras, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by 8sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. 
You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Joe Pompliano is someone that I got sort of aware of through, I don't know if I told you this, Joe, but actually through my students, I teach sports law and sports business. And it was a couple of years ago where my students are like, you know, this guy, Joe Pompliano, I'm like, I got to say, I don't, I don't. And they said, oh my God, he's great. And he does these Twitter threads, which at that time, I didn't know what that was uh, on sports business topics and sports law topics. Of course, these were sports law kids, law law students. And I'm like, okay, I got to find this guy. And I did. And your everything is advertised and so much more. So anyway, great to have you on the program and great for what you do in our our collective space of sports business. Welcome. Well, I thought my intro was pretty good when you came on my show, but that was uh, well above and beyond what I did. So I appreciate <laughs> it. And I'm, I'm happy to know that some of your students enjoy the content also. Why don't we start right there? How did you start doing these threads? And because, as you know, I'm very active on Twitter, but I kind of limit it to my 140 characters and rarely get past the first one in these sort of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven thread kind of things. Uh, you've kind of made it an art form over the years. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I think we probably have to go even a little bit further back, which is why I started doing this in general. And I'll give you the summarized version, but uh, the, the short version is that I, I grew up with four brothers. So five of us in total, we played every sport you could imagine growing up, basketball, football, baseball, et cetera. Uh, so I thought I wanted to be in sports forever. I thought I wanted to be an agent. Uh, I worked at Sp- at Octagon Sports Agency. I did an internship there in college. Mm. Um, and then I got an opportunity to go work up in New York City uh, for JP Morgan. So I quickly realized when I was at Octagon, maybe I don't want to be a sports agent. There was kind of some things about the business and so forth that I, uh, I, I wasn't necessarily as excited as I might have previously been. And then um, I got the other opportunity. So I took that. It was a great job. I was there for four or five years. Um, but I sat down one day and I said, hey, is this really what I want to be doing? you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Um, and I just had a moment where I, I, I really came to the decision that it wasn't. And I wanted to combine the two in some degree, uh, both sports and business, because I was always talking about these things, my, uh, whether it was my girlfriend at the time, my brothers, family members, friends, et cetera. I was always talking about these topics. Uh, so I started writing the newsletter while I was at JP Morgan. Uh, and really the Twitter stuff was just an avenue to get more people to notice it. Right, I was uh, taking basically my newsletters that I was working pretty hard on. Right, it was daily, so I was doing a bunch of research already, and I was just constructing them in maybe eight, nine, or ten tweets. And then at the last one, I would say, "Hey, if you enjoyed this, you should sign up for the newsletter because this was in the newsletter today." Right, and um, that was a very good avenue early on to grow subscribers and grow followers. So once I realized that it worked, uh, I just doubled down on it. I got to a point where I was doing literally maybe five or six a week, one essentially every night uh, for six months. I did over a hundred and um, they take a lot longer than I think people imagine. <laughs> uh, anyone who has tried to do one can can attest to that, I'm sure. But they take a few hours at a time and you obviously have to do the research beforehand. Um, but really it was just, it was a growth tactic and I realized it pretty early on that it was working. So I just got really aggressive and tried to do it as much as I could. So you're at JP Morgan and I didn't know this about your background. I was going to ask about that. So 
you're in the sports agent business, by the way, Octagon, I know very well, they've represented me. I know a lot of people there. Um, and you transitioned to, is it, was it money management? Was it investment portfolios? And did you go to New York, one of the big uh, JP Morgan? So how would that transition go in and how did the transition go out? Yeah, it was uh, pretty seamless. And I actually really enjoyed it a lot. I was on the wealth management side. So you're essentially managing money for individuals or families or uh, uh, kind of smaller LLCs or organizations. And uh, I was on the fixed income team. So high, uh, they split it out between trading desks kind of on the quality of the credit that you're actually trading. So it was just research and trading for fixed income bonds. Um, and I did that for, for you know several years. Uh, and you work your way up. I think most people that are involved in finance know this very well, but for people that don't, there's a very structured path in uh, finance and specifically at places like JP Morgan, where you start out as an analyst then you get promoted to an associate after a few years. And then a few more years, you get promoted to vice president and then you get maybe executive director and the managing director and maybe something else from there, right? You get a leadership position, but um, I made it to associate and that's when I kind of thought everything through. And I'm like, Hey, you know, this is very structured. You're sitting on the desk, you know, JP Morgan, they have desks that are uh, 10 or 12 people long and there's just like a hundred of them. Right. So there's a million of them. And uh, you're sitting next to people that are two, three times your age at this point. Uh, and we're all kind of doing somewhat similar things, right. That maybe they have uh, a greater degree of, of management or, or leadership or uh, responsibility, but you're all kind of doing similar stuff. And that's when it hit me like, okay, I really have to be okay with doing this 40 years from now, if this is what I want to do. Um, which is why I laugh when everyone's like, oh, you know, you got to pick what you want to do when you're older, you're, you're 21 years old, you're 22, like start your career, get going. And I think all of that's important. Uh, but I think it's more important probably to find something that you're willing to work really hard at. Because when I told JP Morgan I was leaving, uh, a lot of them didn't get it. Obviously, they they were like, you know, you're writing a newsletter. Or, are you a writer? Are you a journalist? And I was like, well, I'm going to create content. I'm going to invest. I'm going to do all these different things. And it's it's worked out well now. Looking back, uh, you know, two years now, uh, but at the time they certainly didn't understand it. And I think that the part that they really didn't understand, and probably I didn't even understand at the point, was how hard it was going to be. Right? I worked uh, way more hours when I left than when I was there. And you hear about JP Morgan, I think most people in finance and even outside of it think of it as this like very um, demanding job. And it is, but the point is that the other stuff was more demanding. And when you go out on your own and you're trying to build this, the build a content business from an independent perspective, uh, it's really difficult. So you have to be willing to, to put in the work for sure. It resonates so much with me as you, as I talked about on your podcast, where I left this high paid, high prestige job at the Packers and moved into media and academia and much harder, much more work, but much more uh, rewarding for me. And people, again, like JP Morgan, you think you're the Packers, like working from eight to eight to eight every day. You're there, but you're not doing a lot of stuff, at least from my position. Once the contracts are done, once the team's set, you know, I didn't do a lot of hard negotiating or work. So it, it just, depends on what your sort of lifestyle interests are and your needs. And yes, these jobs are hard, but they're sort of passion plays. And speaking in it, to that, so you get into doing this newsletter, can I say basically full time and then take us where, where your career led. Yeah. So up until I started, uh, I was always in, interested in investing in private businesses, right? So my brothers and I all grew up uh, interested in the business side of these things. And when I was at JP Morgan, it really just got expanded. So we were uh, 
exploring, I would call it, things on the digital side in crypto. And we, we were investing uh, pretty heavily on a personal basis in Bitcoin at the time. So I ended up leaving. And the, the, the thought process was very simple, actually, when I think about it now. It was to have a content business that's, that's personality-driven and independent, so irrespective of kind of every other entity, and use that as an interesting flywheel uh, to work with sponsors and partners, but also leverage that to get deal flow for investments, right? So I started the newsletter when I was at JP Morgan. I probably did it for maybe three months or so. Um, I was up to you know, it looks smaller now, but I know it's significant 10 or 15,000 subscribers when I left. Uh, and I convinced the sponsor to basically, uh, pay me a monthly fee for six months at a time. And I said, I'm going to give it six months. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. If I hate it, I hate it. I'll go back to what I was doing or something similar. Uh, but I'm really going to have a go at it. And I quit and started doing the content stuff full time. And obviously you have the ability now to work many more hours or focus on it much more when you're not at JP Morgan or somewhere similar. So I was creating a lot more content. I was doing more of the threads. I was writing better newsletters. I was trying to market it better. I was tweeting more, all of these things. I was showing up on podcasts. I was really trying to get the word out there and it grow. It grew a lot during that time period. So after six months, I, I found more sponsors and the business started to grow from that capacity. I've since hired more people, uh, but that's also enabled me now to uh, build this platform where I have the ability to uh, not only work with people on a sponsorship level, but actually invest in a lot of these businesses because there's this interesting flywheel that's created now where um, they want me involved because of the audience, right? I have the ability to work with people and uh, tweet about their business, write about their business, podcast with the the founders about their business. Oh, and, and it's very clear, right? I, I, I always make it uh, exceptionally clear about kind of my involvement within these situations. But I also think it's super interesting. Because then I'm able to have conversations or talk about things that maybe people wouldn't see elsewhere. And I would say that the other part that was extremely helpful uh, and something I'm very uh, cognizant about is the personality-driven side of it. I think that uh, when it comes to sports business for sure, but just media in general, people can get news from anywhere, really, when you think yeah. about it. And uh, you have to think about kind of what is different. How do you make yourself different than everything else that's out there? And for me, I'm, I'm, I'm always very conscious of the ability to provide opinion. So when people sign up for the newsletter or people come to Twitter or people listen to the podcast, I'm very clear, like, hey, there's going to be some personal opinion in here. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely biased uh, because one of my core thoughts and thesis is like everyone's biased to some degree, right? It's, it's impossible not to be. Uh, but I feel like people would rather if you're just honest and upfront about yours. So I tell people kind of my thoughts on certain situations. I relay the news for sure, but then I always provide some kind of personal opinion, uh, which I think has been helpful because it provides people the avenue, whether they love it or they hate it, it's just different than everything that's out there. So I think that that's been really important. Um, but Look, I'm I'm very uh, very fortunate at some of the some of the things that have happened. I obviously uh, appreciate people that read and listen to this stuff and follow me on Twitter uh, because now it's my full time job and it's extremely fun. Yeah, again, we're we're kindred spirits there. I think what we both agree is that not only personality driven, we both provide the information, but then we layer on our editorial insights and perspective that are gained from knowledge and experience. That's what people want to see, and I think we have similar followings due to those reasons. And what's really interesting, you and I talk about this all the time, is sports business maybe used to be just a tiny niche where it wasn't really out there. Everyone just wanted to talk about the games and wanted to talk about who's going to be the best player, the best coach, et cetera. And now it has expanded so much. And people like you and I are able to have spaces that are generally in the same genre, 
but very different. As you know, I focus on league and players and contracts and more sort of that side. And you're in a more, I guess, general space in the business of sports. And we both have, you know, plenty, plenty of opportunity to live side by side, which is great. I mean, I, I guess I want your thoughts on the expanding interest, which is great for us in sports business. I remember, I'll just give you this little anecdote. When I'm at ESPN, I was there for eight years after Darren Ravel sort of started the space. And I said to one of my bosses, like, you know what? In addition to me providing in all these other shows, maybe we should have a show. You know, we should have a show, like a half hour week, business of sports, business of football, business of whatever. And he said to me, I won't name him. He said, you know what, Andrew? 12 people will watch that show. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's your opinion. But look where we are now. Uh, look at the popularity of your newsletter, my popularity, Ravel, others, et cetera. So I just think that's a statement on where, we, where we've been and where we are. Yeah, there, there's a bunch of even publications now that cover solely sports business, right? They're, they're yeah. only focused day to day and they have hundreds of employees combined collectively uh, that cover this stuff on a daily basis, whether it's professional or amateur or collegiate. Uh, it's become a massive business. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make irrespective of, of the industry necessarily. Uh, but people go into things thinking that these niches or what people would describe as a niche, at least initially, um, there can't be multiple winners. There can't be people right. that, that succeed uh, at the same time. And I actually think it's the complete opposite. I think that if you work together and everyone has a good relationship, you can drastically expand the market, right? Because uh, people have different approaches. They think about things differently. Their, uh, their content style is different. The way they deliver it is different. And I think what I found over time is that my platform, it started out what I thought was very niche. I, I always thought, you know, like if it doesn't have the money in it, if it's not the business of the sport, like I'm not going to talk about it. And I tried to stay super focused on that and silo myself in that, in that arena for a period of time. And what I realized over time was I'm actually providing for a much bigger group, right? It's people just like me who find these things interesting. And now when I create content, I only ask myself one question. And the question is, do I think this is interesting? Right. And my bet is that there's millions of other people in the world that are just like me and want to talk about these things, whether it is uh, how much Kanye West made from his hoodies at Gap. Right. Like that's something that no one would ever think about. But you right. see it and you talk about it and all these people care about it because it's interesting. So it expands beyond sports. I think I think it goes into culture. I think it goes into uh, film, television like it can go anywhere is my point, really. And I think that. Um, Generally, people just drastically underestimate how big niches can be when you start to expand outside of that. And I think sports business is a perfect example because we went from Darren Robel convincing ESPN, the worldwide leader in sport, to cover it on a, on a regular basis to now there's, there's multiple and several publications that cover it uh, every single day. They have reporters, they have editors, they have staff, they have marketing, they have sales, they have all these organizations. Uh, and it's really expanded and it's great to see. Yeah, it's awesome to see. I want you to take a take our listeners inside. We haven't even mentioned the name. If they're watching, of course, they see it on your shirt. Huddle Up is this great newsletter. I'll let you plug it, of course, but 55,000 and growing. Uh, just an incredible subscriber base. But as you said, it's a lot of work. As someone who writes a weekly newsletter, I know how hard that is. And every night, every day, you doing the same. Tell us sort of the formulation of each day's newsletter and your process, your day-to-day -day in getting that out there. 
Yeah, to be honest, I get asked this question a lot, and yeah. I think people are shocked about uh, how simplistic the approach is. Because when you think about a daily newsletter, uh, it's it's truthfully a lot of work, right? You have to obviously do the research component of it, and you have to craft your ideas and thoughts and your opinion, uh, especially when you're providing that in context. Um, but then there's so many other things that go into it too, right? It's all free, so it's it's monetized through sponsorships. So you're working with sponsors, you're you're making sure all that's in place. Uh, fortunately I have help, right? So I have, uh, several people who help me on a, on a daily basis with, uh, not only the sponsors and everything like that, but research now and other things. Um, but really I, I pick something that I want to write about. It's generally something that's similar or kind of, uh, closely related or, or recent in the news. And I pick a topic. Uh, I do kind of some, some, uh, quick research, maybe, 10 or 15 minutes, read it, make sure it's interesting, uh, try to find some supporting evidence around my first initial opinion. And then uh, I do more research, whether it's later that night or the next morning. And then typically I write it in the morning. So it goes out every day. It goes out uh, around 9 to 9.30 every morning. I wake up early, <laughs> obviously, uh, maybe somewhere between 5 and 5.30. And I write it and I send it out and it's done. And then I don't think about it again until that night. So it's, it's, it's like become a routine at this point. Um, where again, it's time consuming. It takes probably three hours plus each, each newsletter from research to kind of topic formation, to opinion formation, to actually writing the content. Um, but it's become routine at this point. And it's something that, uh, I'm used to, to a degree. And how do you account for your growing subscribers? Are you marketing this in certain ways to get more subscribers? I know obviously both of us, you know, we're very active on Twitter, anything beyond that. No, to be honest, I, I haven't done any paid marketing uh, or any kind of thing ancillary to that too. I've done a couple newsletter swaps. So I've had people reach out to me and say, uh, I know we've done this and other people have done this where you basically uh, put your link in someone else's newsletter and they reference your link. And that's actually a pretty good way to grow initially if people are starting newsletters and want to get their first few hundred or first few thousand subscribers. Highly recommend that because there's there's thousands of people that are in similar positions and want to do the same thing. And you can really leverage each other's audience. But again, the, the easiest thing for me, or I, I don't even know if it's the easiest, but the thing that made the most sense was Twitter. And uh, I realized that if I could just continue growing the follower on Twitter, that would be kind of the top of the funnel. And then I can move people elsewhere, right? So uh, the Twitter, I, do one point, I did 1.2 billion impressions last year, and I should do uh, significantly more this year, but that allowed me to gain, I'm up to 375,000 followers now when we record this. And what I do then is I filter them down. I say, Hey, if you follow me, I know you have some general interest in sports and business or crypto or whatever it is. So you'll probably enjoy this newsletter too. And maybe you get 5%, maybe you get 10%, right. maybe you get 20%, but there's certainly a, a number of people that will flow through. And then from there too, you can do other things. So now I do the podcast, I do contents on YouTube and elsewhere. And you promote it to the same audience. You know that they're interested. And you use this as kind of like your home base. And then you build out Instagram. You build out these other channels. So you're not as reliant on that. Uh, but for me, the, the the holy grail, if we'll call it, is has is and has always been Twitter. And are you, I think we talked about this offline, you are not a one-man shop anymore. You have a staff. Because you're talking about a lot of things going on here, you know, with sponsor uh sponsor activation and sponsor delivery and talking to sponsors and getting new sponsors, et cetera. I would imagine they want to talk to you, but uh, you have to clear your plate of other stuff. So tell us about how you've grown in terms of personnel. 
Yeah, I think it's funny when people, uh, I hear podcasts all the time and people act like they, um, like they have it all figured out to some degree. And I think the one thing that's important is like, I'm still working on it myself and trying to figure out what the best way to do it is for sure. Uh, So I'm very careful to give people advice on exactly how to do it. But I think for me, um, I am very hands-on on a lot of these things. I want to make the final edit. I want things done exactly how I do them. I want yeah. the thumbnail to be made by me, right? I want uh, the description and the comment to be made by me. I want the title to be made by me, and I'm very hands-on. So I've had a difficult time doing that for sure. Um, but to answer your question, I certainly do have help now. Yes, I uh, convinced my girlfriend at the time, now fiance, uh, to come work with me about a year ago. And she handles, luckily, all the sponsorship stuff. So uh, she's in charge of, of uh, talking to the sponsors on a daily basis, making sure that we have the contract signed, we have the invoices sent, we have the assets that we need, both from a copywriting perspective, an imagery perspective, everything like that. So that has taken a lot of stuff off my plate. I certainly help with kind of uh, the calls and stuff like that, as you mentioned, but that's helped tremendously. And then uh, I have someone who helps out with video content. So uh, they help me edit all of the podcasts. They help me with the video components. They help me with the Twitter clips and stuff like that. Uh, and then I just got a, a, a third person um, who is going to help more with all of the research stuff. So uh, research for the newsletter, research for podcasts, research for video clips and so forth. Uh, and he'll he'll manage a lot of the growth stuff and, and the YouTube and everything like that also. Um, but again, I think it's just about finding ways to leverage your time, right? Because when I think about what I do in a day, there are certainly things that are super valuable to me. And then there's things that are less valuable. Yeah. And this, this applies to everyone, right? You, people listening, anyone that uh, is creating content or doing anything really for work. And you have to find out what those high value things are or the high ROI items. And you have to spend more of your time doing those things, right? So content's an interesting business because especially uh, an individual run content business, because if a podcast doesn't, if I don't record a podcast, it doesn't get recorded. If I don't right. do the YouTube clip, it doesn't get posted. If I don't post a tweet, it doesn't get up, right? So uh, you have to spend your time doing those type of things. Otherwise, they don't get done. And then it's just finding ways to to leverage uh, your time for different situations. And again, I'm getting better at it day over day, but I certainly wouldn't be able to accomplish anything that I've accomplished without the people that help me out on a daily basis. You know, spring is finally here. Omaha Steaks makes it easy to stock up on all your favorites. You can visit omahasteaks.com and our brand, yes, my name, all caps, B-R-A-N-D-T, in that search bar, order the Omaha Steak Sampler today. You'll save over 50%, plus you get 12 Omaha Steak Burgers free with your order. The package can have it all of the mouth-watering butcher-cut filet mignons to the delicious caramel apple, apple tartlets. Every order is backed by their 100% satisfaction guarantee to deliver perfection. In every single bite, every mouth-watering bite there is. Visit omahasteaks.com, type keyword brand in the search bar order today. Listen, there's a reason why Omaha Steaks has been the leader of gourmet steaks for over a century. No one, I mean, no one comes close to matching the flavor, the tenderness, the value that you get in a box of Omaha Steaks. Fifth generation owned and operated. They invented meat delivery and they're still the very best. You can sincerely trust Omaha Steaks deliver quality worthy of their name. So again, visit omahasteaks.com, type in keyword brand, order the Omaha sampler today. Omaha Steaks, the best in delivery meats. I like to talk to successful people like yourself about routines. You talked about getting up early, getting your work in, getting the product out relatively early in the morning. 
Talk about your routines in the rest of the day. I mean, are there non-negotiables for you? I mean, I'm talking personally, I know, uh, such as exercise, maybe meditation, maybe time with your spouse, uh, to be spouse, those kind of things. Uh, what, what goes on in your world that maybe you can impart to our listeners? Yeah, I think routines are very important. And if you asked uh, my fiance, I, I, she laughs at me sometimes because I do the same thing basically every day. I, <laughs> I a, lot, a, a lot of times I eat the same meals, I oh. wake up the same time, go to the bed the same time, do all the same stuff, right? And I think that, that uh, uh, some people think that that's wrong, but I think it's actually very helpful to a degree. I think that uh, it makes me do less decisions in a day and, and I don't have to focus so much on, on specific things and I can uh, focus on the work. So yeah, to answer your question, I, I wake up, very early uh, relative to what people might expect for the newsletter. I wake up at five or five 30 in the morning, um, have coffee probably earlier than I should uh, sit down. I write the newsletter. I, I make sure the podcast is going up and everything of that sorts. And then throughout the rest of the day, it's a mix of uh, various things. So content is certainly one of them. I record a live show uh, every day for two hours. I record uh, usually a podcast, maybe two a day. I uh, do Twitter obviously and, and, and other things. But then I also, I would say that a few of the non-negotiables are uh, reading for sure. I think that one of the most important things that I don't know if people generally skip over, but I saw myself uh, being less aware of was just education, right? And I think to do a job like this from a content perspective, you constantly have to make sure that you're staying on top of things from an education perspective. So probably an hour or two a day just to, just to make sure that I am... Uh, kind of unbothered education time from a reading perspective, podcast too, stuff like that. Exercise for sure. Uh, we have a dog, so walk the dog uh, every day, same time and so forth. But yeah, I, I think the routine is important. I don't think I do any like, everyone always talks about like life hacks. I, I've talked to uh, many people about meditation. I've heard it's unbelievable and it's great. I don't do it, uh, but, but things like that, you know, I just never uh, found the time or made the time to do it necessarily. And you mentioned your brothers growing up with a lot of brothers. I assume you're Italian, big Italian family. Um, and your brothers are very, very out there as well, and at least a couple of them on Twitter, uh, having expertise in finance, having expertise in investing. Uh, do you do stuff together with them? You all have your own little siloed empires uh, separate? Or tell us about the fam familial bond there. Yeah. So my older brother actually kicked this off uh, probably a year or two prior than when I started creating content. His uh, He was creating content about things, again, that we were talking about at home, which was um, Bitcoin and finance and investing and all this stuff. So he started a year or two before me. Uh, and now we do similar things. The newsletter, he does uh, similar. He does a podcast also. We do YouTube content. and then, uh, But where it all kind of comes together is on the investing side. So we were investing uh, both personal money, but outside capital from investors, right? So we raised a fund and we're investing uh, about $20 million a year in total in this rolling fund that he initially started in maybe 2018 or 2019. Uh, and we returned all that capital later on. And we said, hey, look, uh, it's probably just more fun and beneficial instead of like having this big headache where we have to talk to a bunch of smaller investors or people that uh, we don't necessarily even know to some degree all the time and updating them on what's going on and all these things like why don't we just do it together so last year we actually closed down that fund and we opened a family office so it's incredible because uh now we get to invest together we we, we awesome. uh pull our money together and we invest in businesses together and again it's helpful because not only do i have the platform but two of my other brothers are, are active on twitter to to complement what you said and they have podcasts and, and so forth and we're able to create this nice business where we share kind of some resources on the back end from a content perspective of, of editors and things like that. 
but ultimately uh, a lot of the value comes from from working together on the investing side and uh, anyone that has multiple brothers or at least has a good relationship with their brothers uh, will tell you that it's awesome. It's, it's, it's amazing to uh, be able to work with them on a daily basis. Where'd you guys grow up and where are you now? Uh, we grew up in North Carolina. We grew up in Cary, North Carolina, for anyone that's familiar with the area, uh, right outside of Raleigh. We, we all, uh, I was born there. Two of my other brothers were born in Florida, but when, when I was born, we lived in North Carolina. I moved up to New York City after school, uh, and then I moved down to Miami. I'm in Miami now. I moved down to Miami a, a little bit over a year ago. Uh, so six or seven years in New York and now Miami. What brought you to Miami besides the weather? The weather is certainly part of it. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting because when I left JP Morgan, you, you have this realization that you're not necessarily tied to a geographical area anymore yeah. because you don't have to go in the office, especially in the work that we're doing. Um, so my older brother moved down to Miami probably four or five months prior. Uh, my, my fiance now and I went down to go visit and we liked it and, uh, we got office space and everything. So we figured why not, we'll try it for a year and see how it goes. And we've really enjoyed it. It's, it's, uh, been great. Part of it is, uh, a little bit unfortunate because we have some family that's still in New York and New Jersey, and, and we certainly uh, try to see them when we can. But yeah, to, to, to your other point, which is the weather is awesome. Uh, there's there's a very good, I, I don't know if vibe is the right word, but there's a very good feeling down here right now yeah. uh, with a lot of people moving here out of cities that they were traditionally in for work. And now that everything's kind of been opened up and decentralized to a degree, uh, they have the ability to move elsewhere. And I think Miami has been a big beneficiary of that and other cities have also for sure. Uh, but when you just think about geographic location, like, you know, there's, there's eight or 9 million people that live in New York city. It's a very small area. If you don't have to work there, then yeah. there's probably a lot of people that are going to move out and same with LA and San Francisco and Chicago or any major city. Um, and I think Miami was a big beneficiary of that because of the weather and, and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a post pandemic thing that's going to last in terms of people realizing they can be anywhere, not necessarily completely work from home, but just understand that there are other places you don't have to go into a cubicle every day or even an office. Uh, I want to talk about two content areas. I mean, you cover so much in your newsletter, uh, way beyond stuff that I do in terms of, again, leagues and teams and NFL and football, basketball, baseball. One one area that you talk a lot about and you obviously have a great background in is crypto. Uh, now, you know crypto way beyond the sports space, but talk a little bit, of, if you will, about crypto in sports. I guess you can take this anywhere you want to go, but sort of NFTs were kind of a big thing. Maybe are they still? Should they still be? We have a little fraud involved in there. And then, of course, the league's aspects towards crypto. It seems like NBA is always kind of an early adapter in that area. You just had something on the NFL being tentative in that space, but slowly jumping in. So talk a little bit about crypto and crypto and sports and where these leagues are in their acceptance level. Yeah, it's funny to me because... I was seen as like an expert, I guess, to call it from the sports space when it came to crypto, because yeah. I had personally been investing in it for years at this point. And it was something that I was uh, intellectually curious about, and interested in, uh, and invested a lot of not only money, but time into learning. So I had been uh, very in tune with kind of what was happening on the Bitcoin side for four or five years when all of this really started happening in sports. And the thing that's interesting to me is like, I never saw it expanding to what it is today. Not, mm. not, not necessarily Bitcoin. I always thought Bitcoin was going to be very, very, very important, but I didn't see the NFT space coming like this. I didn't see all these sponsorships coming. I mean, to a degree, it's obvious now, 
Um, but it, but it's just been really unique because I was always solely focused on what I'll call like one specific asset of the area. And now it's expanded all these other things. And I've, and I've forced myself to really uh, gain an understanding and education around it. But when I think it comes, when it comes to sports specifically, I think we've seen a few things. So there's certainly a lot of stuff that's happened on the NFT side. My personal opinion is that, um, the technology or the thesis behind NFTs is very interesting and very cool. I think that the mistake a lot of people make is that uh, they think that it is the end-all be-all. The truth is that you can get very, very, very close to what an NFT is through a centralized and a private database, right? You can essentially run a database for a company and get something very similar. Sure, there's maybe some some nuance behind it that's different, and, and certainly that's true. Uh, but for what most people are doing, I think you can do it in a traditional sense. And that leads me to say that probably 90 to 99% of the stuff out there right now is, is uh, being sh shook out, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be determined if it's worthwhile or not. I think the people that have done well are ones that have taken a cautious approach. And I think we've seen this in general with sports. Um, there's certainly tokens and, and businesses that have gone alive and uh, gotten adopted in Europe. And we've seen a lot of them, sponsors have been removed, uh, tokens have lost value and fans have lost money, players have lost money, leagues and teams have lost money and so forth. And I feel like the the approach has been different. Europe has been very aggressive in a lot of this stuff, and the United States has been much more reserved. And what instead has happened here, I think, is is the right approach, which is uh, it's certainly been a little more cautious, but it's much more from like a legitimate sponsorship perspective. So if you think about the largest exchanges in the world, everyone has probably heard about them by now. Coinbase, Crypto.com, FTX, these are all exchanges, right? So they make money whether the price goes up or down, et cetera. Mm. People are trading these assets on their platform. So they're the ones spending all the money because, right, when you're building the business, the the, the most expensive uh, area at first from a marketing perspective is acquiring customers. So initially they go out and they market to all of the finance folks, right? If you're interested in investing, you're probably going to be interested in crypto to some degree. Whether you believe in it or not, you'll at least understand it and you'll know kind of what's going on. Then the second avenue, and Sam Bankman-Fried, who is the CEO of FTX, has talked about this a lot which was uh, they ran a bunch of data and all the data basically shows that sports fans are two to three times more likely than any other avenue to be interested in crypto. So then what do you do? You go start pushing all your marketing dollars towards sports. So FDX was really the pioneer in this space. And, mm -hmm. and now we've seen some add-ons with crypto.com and others. But uh, over a year ago now, I think it is that FTX bought the naming rights to the arena in Miami. Uh, they sponsor another uh, football field for Cal in, in, in California. Right. Um, Crypto.com has sponsored the UFC. They're doing Formula One. Uh, Coinbase is the official partner of the NBA. And these are billions of dollars of contracts, right? So again, it makes sense because the, the business has exploded. Bitcoin is now, I think it's a $750 billion or $800 billion asset class. We were above a trillion last year, but the total market is, is certainly above a trillion or two trillion at this point. So this has grown up a lot in the past three or four years. And that means that exchanges have made a lot of money. So now they're spending all that money to acquire new customers, et cetera. But for the leagues, it was an interesting avenue because they had just come off the pandemic, right? And they lost a bunch of money. Each right. of these leagues lost over a billion dollars, $2 billion, $3 billion uh, from not having fans in attendance, from losing sponsorships, from losing some, some of them lost TV rights. And obviously you want to recoup some of that money. So you're willing to, to kind of go further out on what we'll call the risk curve when it comes to sponsorships. These aren't your, your uh, Budweiser or your Bud Light companies right. or whatever, you know, you're taking a little more risk, uh, but the dollars are worth it. And then ancillary to that, 
I think it's going to continue and even get bigger because uh, one part of the equation for sure is they have a lot of money to spend. But two, this is a completely new revenue stream for these leagues, right? The NBA is a perfect example. They did a deal with Coinbase where Coinbase is now the official crypto partner of the NBA. That's a sponsorship category that didn't exist before. Right. You know what I mean? That, that right. They weren't getting paid a dollar for that before because it literally didn't exist. And now it exists and they're able to go sell that inventory. So when you're able to, to add kind of more surface area on an inventory level, it makes a lot of sense that they're willing to go further out on the risk curve for some of these items. Again, I think like some of these are going to be good deals and some are going to be bad deals. I think everyone's always cautious about like, oh, this is the smartest thing to do. This is the best thing to do because ultimately like no one really knows. This is going to take years to play out in some scenarios. Um, but I think that it makes a lot of sense at least as to why we're seeing it play out on such a large scale. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, a new category, you mentioned Bitcoin, new category. Sports betting is the same thing, right? They didn't, there was no official casino of anyone there was no official sports betting partner of anyone and now leagues teams media everyone's involved in it uh it's really interesting the other area i wanted to get your thoughts on because you and i've talked about this i didn't know formula one from baby formula <laughs> like until that drive to survive it netflix series has drawn me in like so many others and I read your newsletter and see the incredible popularity uh, in this country and around the world of F1. It's just, it's caught me in as only 20 drivers. It's there's a lot of drama. It's all these superstars, Lewis Hamilton, et cetera. And it's coming there where you are in Miami in a couple of weeks. So you tell us what you see from a business case study point of view with F1, maybe specifically with Netflix or even beyond that? Yeah. So I guess the background is helpful, which is that Liberty Media bought uh, bought Formula One, the series, and they, they paid about three or $4 billion in uh, cash, but the enterprise value on the business was seven or eight with debt. So they, uh, they, they allocated a substantial amount of money towards the series. And the easiest way to think about it is that Formula One is a massive sport globally. It wasn't here in the United States, and it still isn't to, to a huge degree the biggest sport, but it's a massive sport globally. The average race had above 90 million people watching each race, right? And wow. for context, the Super Bowl gets 100 maybe, right? So uh, globally, it is a massive sport, but it was super undervalued and under monetized given the leadership. So there is, there is this gentleman named Bernie Ecclestone who used to run Formula One for years and decades. And there's this famous quote that he has, and, and I'll have to send it to you after this, but essentially the gist of it was he didn't care about younger fans because their sponsors were UBS and Rolex and expensive companies like that. And he's literally quoted as saying, what do these kids know? They can't buy any of these products. I don't care oh, about wow. kids. And today that sounds idiotic to some yeah. degree, right? Like it's just a completely opposite approach of what every other league is doing. So when you think about the NFL, the Premier League actually has more fans than the NFL. Formula One has more fans than the NFL. But the NFL does an incredible job. And most American sports in general, I think I think the Western world is known from this for this from other countries around the world, is they monetize the asset really well. So these are these are kind of just made up numbers, but say the NFL has one fan, they earn four dollars off that fan every year. For Formula One, it was like fifty cents per fan, right? Mm -hmm. And it's completely different. And and maybe those are are overgeneralized to a degree, but you get the point. So 
Liberty Media buys this business and they turn it around. And what they've done is a few different things. Uh, one, they made the racing closer. So they changed some of the rules. So the cars are now much more competitive than they used to be. There's usually one or two teams at the top, but Mercedes won the, the title for eight years in a row. Right. And to some degree, that gets boring to some people, right? They, they don't want to see Lewis Hamilton winning every single year or Mercedes winning every single year. And the car plays a huge part of that, right? So you have to make it more competitive from a, from a competition standpoint. They've done that. The cars are now, they've changed some of the rules and, and the racing is much, uh, not only cleaner, but competitive. So that, that was part one. Two, uh, they redid their entire inventory and sales sponsorship. Uh, packages. So they used to sell, hey, we have three tiers, you're buying one of these, and that's what you get. And it was like a very uh, basic cookie cutter approach. And now it's very customized, right? Like every other sports league does. So maybe you get this asset one race, you get this asset another race, you're paying for this on another race, et cetera. And everyone kind of gets a unique custom package. And what that enabled them to do is monetize it to a much greater degree. So they've done that and they've made a bunch of money and expanded the revenue from that capacity. Next is um, the Netflix series. So the Netflix series has been huge from a U.S. perspective. I joke all the time, and, and initially when I said this two years ago, people laughed, and I don't think anyone laughs today, but uh, the Netflix series, Formula One should be paying Netflix, right. right? And it's the other way around. Netflix pays Formula One for the content. And I say that because it's brought billions of dollars in economic value to Formula One, right? If you just think about where the sport was years ago, Formula One, it, it was on in the 90s and the 2000s, but I think it was 2010 to 2012 or 2014, somewhere in that range, kind of early 2010s, Formula One wasn't even in the US. There was no races here hmm. and they took it away and it wasn't popular at all. They were averaging like three or 400,000 viewers per race, just no audience at all. IndyCar spawned up, NASCAR spawned up and, and got very popular. And what we've seen is now uh, Netflix has been that content vehicle that has allowed them to reintroduce the sport to America. And I think what they've done so well is obviously the content is great. You, you, get to, uh, you, you get to see the drivers. You get to see the inner workings of kind of the garages and the paddock that you normally wouldn't right. see elsewhere. And you really learn about a lot of these people, the rivalries, the teams, et cetera. So that's, that's very important. And that has allowed them to expand again in the United States, right? And when you think about, again, the Western world, we're able to monetize these events much better than anywhere else. It's the largest economy in the world by far. Sports fans are willing to spend more money. They're interested in these events, et cetera. So we, had a, we have a race in Austin. Uh, last year in Austin, even with the pandemic, was the largest F1 race in history. I think they had 400 or 450,000 fans attend the three-day weekend. And that's the other thing they've done really well is they've turned the events from, from kind of just the race to these, yeah. these massive parties now. So there's DJs, there's concerts, there's all these events around it, which has turned it into kind of like festivals. But now they're doing Miami this year. So you mentioned it's, it's uh, early next month, two or three weeks away now. They're doing that race. And then they just announced another in Las Vegas. So now they went from having zero races to three races. Yeah. And that's more than any other country in the world has now. And I think that uh, Netflix obviously has a huge part to play in this. But I think it's also just going to get bigger. We, we, when I mentioned earlier, there was three or 400,000 people watching. Even two years ago, there was 500,000 people watching each race. This year, the first two or three races have averaged 1.2, 1.3 million viewers. And uh, ESPN does the deal for media rights. And they were paying, uh, at first, I think it, I, I heard it was zero. They were just essentially getting it for free right. broadcast. But now I, I think the number came out and it was like five or seven million or something like that. And that's essentially nothing compared to, to right. what these rights would command elsewhere or, or for another sport. And now there's reports that Formula One's trying to get $75 million a year. And maybe they get 50, maybe they get 60, maybe they get 40, but 
the point is the sport has grown tremendously to the point where they can now uh, request these kind of numbers and demand these numbers. And Formula One's a tricky sport to broadcast because there's no commercials generally, right? right? So it's very difficult to make your money back. And, and I think that's part of the concern, right, is if you start to monetize it too well, then ESPN's like, okay, we probably need to run some commercials. So some, some fans are, are worried about that. Um, but I think Formula One's here to stay. I think they've done an incredible job. It's obviously a super interesting sport. And there's a reason why it's been so popular elsewhere in the world. And, and now that's adopting here. And the last thing I would say about it, actually, one other thing that I forgot to mention that I think was really helpful was social media. Social yeah. media obviously has played a huge role in, in sports globally in our, our society at all, as a whole. But Formula One was very stringent on social media before. They actually used to find drivers and find teams for things that they would say online or if they were tweeting for, for about certain things. And they've relaxed all those rules. And what you see now is these uh, the, these accounts, the drivers themselves for sure, but the teams even, they drive massive amounts of engagement and impressions. You, you see tweets. It's not weird to see Lewis Hamilton post something and get hundreds of thousands of likes. Hmm. And they're really superstars. And yeah. the ability that it offers you similar to Netflix to get your content from a personnel perspective in front of more people is really powerful. And I think they've done a great job at that also. And we're seeing that model with Netflix. And I believe the production company is called Block Box to Box or something like that. Yeah, Box uh, to Box Films. Box to Box Films approach, I believe, all of these entities. PGA, uh, ATP started with the drama with Jokovic at the Australian Open and uh, Tour de France. So so these leagues, entities are learning. Like, this is a, an incredible fan engagement opportunity. Well, the, the interesting thing, too, is um, there's two things to me, right? The NFL is obviously looking at this and like, hey, we do hard knocks. Right? Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that similar? And it is to a degree. It's, it's, it's somewhat similar. And Amazon does other things, too. Right. Uh, they do the all-in series and, and a few other things. So, like, there's other content out there. I think the Netflix partnership, uh, everyone's trying to copy that model. It's, it's, uh, we've seen, you know, as people who create content in sports, it's at a premium right now. Everyone's trying to create original content yeah. around sports and it's super expensive for these companies to go out and acquire and buy, but that's why the demand is so strong. And that's why people are creating so much of this content. So I think we're going to continue to see that. The other two things I think about a lot is, is, is twofold. Netflix, eventually, in my mind at least, is going to start acquiring the live rights to these, right? So if you're already having Formula One as a series, why not just buy the live rights? Uh, And you can broadcast them in in other countries or internationally or whatever. And uh, it's much more beneficial to you who already has the home of of Drive to Survive. Then two, one of the things I know Alex Sherman wrote about this the other day for CNBC, uh, but it's something that I've talked about a lot. And uh, Mike Rabel, when he was on my podcast, we were even talking about was the idea that they would start buying some of these leagues. And mm. the example that we always used was um, he runs the PLL. So that's essentially why we were talking about right. it. But the the example that we used was the UFC. So the UFC has this massive streaming deal with ESPN and Disney. But when they signed that deal, it was a much, much smaller business. They could have bought the entire business for a couple billion dollars. And now it's a $10 billion business almost and growing. And they would have got a discount obviously on the rights and they would have been able to vertically integrate the business and expand it dramatically. And you can argue, sure, UFC may not be the best uh, image for the brand. And I think that's that's most of kind of what Alex was saying. Uh, but I think we're going to start to see this more often. Maybe it's not Disney. Maybe it's not Netflix. Maybe it's other people. But I think what we're going to see is is the interest in acquiring some of these assets earlier on. So then you can kind of vertically integrate them and own the relationship all the way up. It really is fascinating that that, that model you're talking about. Of course, Netflix, Apple, Amazon getting involved with all the... 
substantial resources that they have, they can really change the game from traditional over the air, traditional legacy networks. I, al I always think about that as well. One thing that I, I see out there is this, um, this feeling that sports is getting away from the average fan. But I, I think what you just talked about is the access part. Even when I was leaving the Packers 10, 11 years ago, I'm like, you know, this is going to, it's going to be an irresistible force versus an immovable object here because what media wants and fans is more access. What coaches and teams want is less access, right? So I'm at the Packers. We were approached every year by hard knocks. We always said no. We just felt like the, 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 the end of the discussion was how can this help us? You know, the whole world knows the Packers. So how can this help us? And the answer was, it can't. It can only bring people into our trade secrets and see what, you know, we talk about in meetings, et cetera. Now, for teams that weren't as well known, I understand it. But this is going to be the ultimate, I think, question is everyone wants more access. We've seen it with Drive to Survive, right? Verstappen and Hamilton, like, I don't need this. Screw this, you know? So I wonder where that rubber meets the road there for pardon the pun, but I do. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point. And, and what you're mentioning for people who don't know is uh, Max Verstappen. He literally doesn't participate in driver yeah. survive anymore. He he's on the show, certainly from kind of images and video they capture outside of his participation, but he doesn't do any interviews. He doesn't provide any, you know, firsthand content. And part of that was the over dramatization of it, right? He said, you guys are making these rivalries that don't necessarily right. exist. And, and that's show business, right? That's right. what Netflix is there for. And that's what Box to Box Films does. That's The Bachelor. <laughs> and, and, exactly. And, and that's what fans want. Even if they won't admit it, that's what they want. And that's why it's been so successful is because that's the content that they crave. And again, fans don't admit this because they don't even know it subconsciously a lot of times, but <laughs> right. that's, that's what they want. It's the same reason why reality shows are popular and so forth. And I think that that's, that's a good point that we're going to run into this issue where Fans uh, want more, to your point. Owners want less. But I also think that we're going to realize, and a lot of owners are going to realize, how beneficial it could be. Yeah. Right. So if you take Drive to Survive for an example, again, Mercedes is the top team. They've won the championship seven years in a row in the, or six years in a row when it first started. Now they've run it eight years in a row, the team championship. The first year of the show, they refused to be on it. They right. weren't on it. And then the second year, they said, oh, we should probably be on this show because from a commercial perspective, from a licensing perspective, from a brand value perspective, it's so valuable. Okay. And uh, here, here's a good stat that most people probably don't know or think about when it comes to Formula One. The top two teams, at least last year, Mercedes and Red Bull, and I assume it's probably pretty consistent year to year, they're on, they receive about 25% of the TV time of each broadcast because they're in the front of the pack. They're the most talked about teams they're the most popular. So you're, you have 90 million people watching you every weekend for essentially, uh, you know, an hour at least per day, maybe two or three hours, depending on kind of how the schedule plays out, but right. your brand is face is, is right there. Right. So that's the same reason why Red Bull, Red Bull is essentially, uh, you, you know, they're an energy drink company, but they don't even make the energy drinks. They're right. a, manu they're a marketing company. So they right. essentially put their name on the side of the car. They're not a, they're not an engine manufacturer. They don't do any of the actual car stuff. It's a marketing play. And they slap their name on there because they know that millions of people are going to see them every single weekend. And that's why if you look at formula one drive to survive, I don't know if this is an agreement or not, but it's very, very, very obvious that Red Bull is, is the most, uh, willing to participate in it yeah. right christian horner is yeah. the, the he's a star 
he's the star of the show. They're at his house. They're with his kids. They're with his family. He's every interview is of him, right? So I, I'm assuming at some point Red Bull, you know, is pushing that and saying, "Hey, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this," because it goes back to how many people are watching the race. How many people are watching the Netflix series? A lot of people. And I think what we're going to find is that from a monetization standpoint, some owners are going to realize how beneficial this could be. And they're really going to start to double down and, and, and they're going to toe the line. They're going to give more access to the point where coaches and players get frustrated and, and want to pull back. Uh, and I think you're right. We're going to go through this period where it's just a, a, a tug of war between the two parties of, of giving more and less access uh, right at the line of, of maximizing monetization. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's happening in other sports. When I watch the NBA or the NBA playoffs, I'm always kind of, I get my little excitement going when I see, okay, we're going to do a mic'd up or wired, whatever they call it. And then usually it's it's like a coach saying, hey guys, let's get that rebound. Hey guys, we need to push harder here. Hey guys, stay strong. And then I'm disappointed. And I understand there's kind of a reason for that where the NBA is saying, okay, we'll do this. But we're going to edit out, you know, where he says, hey, Kevin Durant, get this pick and Kyrie Irving come around it. I'm like, that's what you want to hear. You don't want to hear, hey, guys, go get the rebound. So I just think fans are always going to want more. Coaches are going to want less. Owners are going to realize the inherent value of it. Yes. But the football, basketball, baseball operations are going to, you know, they're going to have to buy in. I yeah. mean, that's going to be a change. I totally agree. I think it's going to be fascinating, at least over the next several years, to see how that specific dynamic develops. Yeah. I want to bring this uh, plane to a landing here and keep you under an hour, Joe. It's been great. A couple last rapid fires, as I try to do with special guests, is um, favorite athlete? LeBron James. <laughs> favorite team? New York Giants. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh do I get clarification on those two answers? Let, <laughs> let, let, let me give the 30-second explanation. Quick clarification, yeah. Uh, Elevator speech clarification. Uh, LeBron James, do I think he's the greatest basketball player of all time? I don't know, but I think he's been an incredible basketball player. He's lived up to every hype and exceeded all the hype that he had coming in, uh, and he's been a great role model and done a lot of good things in the world. So I, uh, I think he's a, a tremendous person to look up to when it comes to athlete. The team, uh, I'm a New York Giants fan because my dad was a New York Giants fan. I had no no excuse. I just had to watch the games with him, and then you become a fan. LeBron fits into a lot of what we're talking about because he was the first, unless I'm missing someone, social media scrutinized athlete. And since the decision right when Twitter was coming along in 2010, it was just – he's been like the Truman Show his whole life. Uh, it's really amazing that he has never, in so many words, screwed up. You know, it's just an amazing run for him. There's very few people that could be on the cover of Sports Illustrated being called the chosen one at 16. Uh, and again, not only live up to the hype, but exceed it. So uh, I give him a lot of credit for that. You know, there's always things that you can you can uh, uh, criticize people for. But I think that overall, when you look at the full body of work, it's very impressive. Book, you mentioned a lot of reading and I know, you know, do a lot of endemic reading. But if you were going to gift a book to your friends, family, students, whatever it may be, what book would that be? I'll do, given the spirit of the podcast, I'll do a sports book. Uh, and one of my favorite sports books is The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh. Hmm. Um, 
I love it. I think it's great. It's a very, very easy read. I've, I've actually, to your point, given it to a few people for sure. And uh, he's just an incredible leader. He had some some incredible anecdotes in there about kind of how he organized the uh, structure of his organization, what he expected of people on a daily basis, uh, and how he turned the team around. They were a really bad team before he got there, right? And and uh, yeah. one of the also the, the interesting things was. Um, Certainly there's things around kind of his expectations. I think one of the funny stories in there is like he had a script that he was giving to the receptionist and they had to answer the phone call like that every single day. And he, he was like very, very, very detailed, almost probably to a fault uh, when it came to some of the, that stuff. Uh, but also his patience. He talks about when they lost the game, I think it was in Miami, he's flying back to California and he's crying on the flight. He's just so upset. Oh, wow. I think he was saying because he thought he was going to get fired. He thought that it was over. He's like, I can't do this. We suck still. And the team turns around and they win these Super Bowls and stuff. And uh, a lot of it is is uh, leadership qualities. But I, I think yeah. it's a very cool book because uh, there's a lot of real practical examples in there that he shows and you can literally look back on history and see. That segues to the next question. Favorite business or sports leader? Business or sports leader? Um, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's an easy answer, I guess, off of this. But um, that's a good one. Uh, let's go with, I love, uh, I don't know if this counts, Michael Rubin. Yeah. I don't know if that counts, but I, I, I down the street from where I am right now. He lives down the street. Yeah. Does he? Yeah. He, um, I don't know him personally at all. So this is not like a, a, a plug for him as a friend. I, I just love what he's doing with Fanatics. I think he realized probably better than anyone else, how important incentives were when it came to building a business around sports leagues. And I think what he has done when it comes to working with different sports leagues, giving them equity in the business, getting the exclusive rights, and then building businesses on top of that is one of the uh, most intellectual and uh, uh, fascinating business case studies ever because they've made a bunch of money. He's obviously made a bunch of money. These businesses have expanded in value. And now it's awarded him the opportunity to do it a bunch of, to do it over a, a bunch of different avenues, right? Trading cards, gaming, sports betting, et cetera. And I think that um, for all the press that he's probably gotten in the last year or two, I think it's just getting started. I think yeah. um, I, th I think we're going to watch him build out this this big marketplace, and eventually every sports fan is going to be tied to his business in some way or another. And last one, favorite quote, whether it's from someone else to sort of impart to your fans, to students, to young people, or your own quote, sort of a favorite piece of advice, whether quote from someone else or from yourself. Um. I don't know who said this, so I can't attribute it to someone, but I'm sure people have heard it by now. And it's just generally the idea of having strong opinions, but holding them loosely. Hmm. And I think about that a lot because I think it's important to believe in what you're saying and, and be confident in what you're saying, right? And, and know that you've done the work and you've looked at it from a first principles perspective enough to really be confident in your, your opinion or your answer. Uh, but I think that you want to get to a point where you're willing to argue with someone, right? You're going back and forth with someone almost to the point where people are uncomfortable around you. But ultimately, if them or you present new information that is true that the other person didn't know about, you're willing to say, hey, you know what? I was wrong. I didn't think about it that way. You're right. And I think that um, generally 
we, we, we're turning into a, a world or a society where people are not willing to do that as much. They, they want to uh, confirm their bias and they want to uh, be right. Yeah. And I think, again, if you're confident that you've done the work and you've looked at it from the right perspective and, and you're confident in your answer, then that's perfectly fine. But when someone presents new information, uh, it's something I think a lot about of being willing to change your mind quickly. Yeah, it's sort of a corollary quote to that. I don't know who said it either. Something about if someone tells you it's the uh, whole truth and complete truth, run the other way or something like that. Yeah. Um, finally, tell everyone uh, where they can find your newsletter, where they can find your podcast, all your channels. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, they can go to readhuddleup.com uh, to get the newsletter. And if you want to make it even easier on yourself, you can just go to Twitter at Joe Pompliano and you can find everything. I have a website on there. I link to the newsletter. I am, uh, I feel like I'm constantly posting about the podcast. So you're, you'll certainly run into that at some degree. Um, but that's, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Joe, I'm really enjoying our, uh, growing professional and personal relationship. This has been great. Um, encourage everyone to listen to me being interviewed by you on a recent podcast last week, this week. And then, of course, uh, we'll have you back as a regular guest if you're willing. Of course. I'm happy to do it. Uh, I always appreciate talking to you. I, I tell people all the time that you're the level head when it comes to uh, the sports business side. You, you're able to remove the emotion from a lot of these things and just say it how it is, and I respect that for sure. Thanks for joining the Business of Sports, Joe. It's a great conversation as always. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.